Hey, you're listening to Sound on Sight. This week, it's a big one. We're talking about uh, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, the first in Peter Jackson's prequel trilogy to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, of course, one of the most popular franchises in movie history. And we're joined by very special guest Nick Shager to discuss the film and, of course, 48 frames per second. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy yourself. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Hey, you're listening to Sound on Sight. I'm Simon Howell, content editor over at soundonsight.org. I'm joined by general editor, Mr. Ricky D. What up? Good evening, gentlemen. And we're very excited to bring you a staff critic from Slant Magazine, as well as a contributor to The Village Voice, Time Out New York, IFC News, and now Film Comment, and of course, mustache enthusiast, Mr. Nick Shager. Thanks for having me. And uh, let's hear a clip, and then we can start talking about The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, directed by Peter Jackson. This is Ochrist, the Goblin Cleaver, a famous blade forged by the high elves of the West. My kin, may it serve you well. And this is Glamdring, the Foehammer, sword of the King of Gondolin. Swords were made for the goblin wars of the first... I wouldn't bother, laddie. Swords are named for the great deeds they do in war. What are you saying? My sword hasn't seen battle? I'm not actually sure it is a sword. More of a letter opener, really. That was a clip from The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, previously to be directed by Guillermo del Toro, but finally directed by Peter Jackson, who also helmed the Lord of the Rings trilogy, although Guillermo del Toro does still have a screenplay credit along with Jackson, Fran Walsh, and Philippa Boyens, uh, who, of course, also co-wrote the Lord of the Rings films. This is a prequel. In a sense, it's a prequel prequel because it's setting up this prequel trilogy, which sets, uh, which is set about 60 years before the events of Lord of the Rings films. It concerns not Frodo Baggins, but his uncle Bilbo, played uh, in older form by Ian Holm, as with the first films, and in younger form for most of the film, by Mr. Martin Freeman, who you might know from the American office, uh, sorry, from the British office, or from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And uh, this film specifically uh, charts his uh, his joining a band of dwarves to take back their take back their homeland of Erebor, which is taken up with a rather large dragon named Smaug, if I have that correctly. And that's all the synopsizing I'm going to try to do right now. So, uh, Nick, one of the reasons that I thought to bring you on for this was because when I was trolling through your blog, I noticed you were a big fan of the original films. I was, yeah. Uh, And I'm not someone who grew up as a big Tolkien fan, per se, or even really fantasy literature. Uh, Not that they're not interests. I mean, but yeah, I really I really liked the, the original trilogy. I especially liked Return of the King, despite its, you know, many, many, many endings. Uh, and yeah, I, you know, it, it, uh, I think it holds up really well. I watched it again in its entirety a year or two ago. And I I think it's overall, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty great. And how do you feel, uh, this first installment at least holds up to that standard? I think to put it sort of mildly, I think that this, that, that this initial installment in the new trilogy is sort of a disaster. Uh, I don't think it holds up to the original trilogy almost at all. And I think that it, 
it it it's sort of almost an example of of uh if you could have imagined while watching the original trilogy how this could have gone wrong the hobbit is is sort of is is that it, i just don't think it works in almost any respect now rick now that i've forced the comparison between lord of the rings and the hobbit i i guess i, I want to put that same question to you while also asking is it even a fair comparison well i haven't read the original source material so i don't know because um i mean the hobbit is essentially a children's book and it's a children's movie so it's written for children as a very simple narrative I, I I don't know if I if I should make the comparison because I know many of my friends that dislike The Hobbit they are huge fans of the actual original source material. I can say fairly I actually enjoy the movie. Like I really really dig this movie. I, I think it's a great children's movie. It's not perfect, but I would go so far as to say calling the disaster is a little unfair. I don't think it's a disaster. I think it has many, many problems, but um, I think the biggest challenge faced by Peter Jackson is how to address the tonal shift. From my understanding, it's basically the first six chapters of the book, which I find amazing because the movie is like so bloody long. But it works as like a long flashback. You know, man, I don't know. I went into this movie thinking I would hate it. And every week on the show, I always talk about expectations, anticipation, hype. And I went in... Uh, knowing fully well it was really long, I didn't think I would like the look of the film because I did see it in 48 frames per second. So I was prepared to dislike this movie, and I, I was actually pleasantly surprised. I actually walked out really enjoying the whole entire experience. I was actually glued to my seat. So yeah, I totally dug this movie. And as so frequently happens when we have two uh, sort of polar opposite opinions just expressed, I'm somewhere in between. I don't think it's a total disaster. But it's uh, it's definitely got some problems. I think to me, what's really frustrating about The Hobbit is it feels like the logical endpoint of, this, I guess, the film culture that Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, the original trilogy, helped usher in. Where studios have figured out if you can bring out the geek faithful, if you can get them someone to uh, to render their sort of pet material in loving detail, uh, and if you can do that as much as possible they will come out in droves. And I guess it remains to be seen whether that will actually happen, but that's the idea. And so here we have this, from what I understand, like 270-page book being adapted into not one, not two, but three, we can assume, three-hour films. I, I, I'm just assuming these films are just going to get longer. Sorry, I have to cut you off. It's a 270-page book adapted into two movies because the third film, from what I understand, is not actually based on the writing of Tolkien. It's oh, supposed well, to be a okay. connection that Peter Jackson is making from the Hobbit uh, movies to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So basically, we have 100 pages adapted into the first movie, which, you know, I mean, you can argue if it's one minute per page, it should be 100 minutes long. But, you know, taken to a fact there is the huge action set pieces, it kind of makes sense. It's like three hours long. Like I, I could have done without the first 10 minutes. You know, there was a lot of padding in this movie, and I do agree it's far too long but i think overall it's a pretty entertaining movie and once again i'm i'm looking at the movie as a kids movie and i think it's a really good kids movie um well we, we can get back to the notion of it as a, as a kids movie but I, I think the other thing to remember is when this was initially being planned of course it was two films up until about eight months ago i think uh and then it was expanded into three films i don't know if that means he took the story from the two films and expanded it, or whether, like you say, the third film is going to be cut from entirely different cloth. I find that hard to believe, especially given the titling, but... It, it was it was initially supposed to be one film, and, you know, like, you know, Del Toro was supposed to direct, and, you know, different producers came in, a new different director, Peter Jackson took over, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then somehow they decided to make a three movies. Now, we all know they decided to make a three movies because they want to make as much money as they can, which, you know, how could you fault them? I mean, like, hey, if you're going to make five billion dollars off each movie like if i was a producer I'd be like sure go for it uh well i can fault them just because you know i'm not in a position to make any money <laughs> <laughs> but um and it, yeah i don't think anyone would fault them financially speaking uh, they have to do what they have to do but that's sort of separate from whether or not creatively it's justified yeah uh, yeah of course they have a they have a built-in franchise here uh they have uh, as you were saying a built-in audience uh geek culture that's going to come out and see it uh, it's no surprise that they've turned it into three movies, especially because trilogies are the thing to do. Uh, but yeah, whether or not it's justified creatively is is sort of, I think, what what it sounds like we're going to get yeah. into here. Uh, 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 and to, to jump the gun a bit, I feel like it's not a good sign that 
I think we can all agree, although we haven't gotten there yet, so maybe we can't, that the best portion of the film, by a long shot, is the 20 or so minutes that involves Gollum, who, from what I remember the book, this is the only time he appears. And the fact that that's so great, and it's also the part of the film that's most reminiscent of the original trilogy, is not a great indicator, I don't think. Was it lost? Yes, yes, and I want to get unlost as soon as possible. Oh, we nurse. We know safe paths for horses. Safe paths in the dark. Shut up. Didn't say anything. I wasn't talking to you. I would, I would certainly agree with that. I think that is the, the obviously the high point of the film, and uh, it, it's the, yeah, it's the one part that feels uh, the most uh, mature. And I don't mean mature in a in a necessarily in a grown up sense. I just mean it, it's it it feels the most fully developed. And Gollum himself remains the sort of the most engaging character I think of the entire series. And it's the only part where it doesn't feel uh, either too drawn out or uh, too slapsticky, uh, and slapsticky in a very forced way. I found and. Uh, uh, one of my problems with the entire film, and I'm sure we'll get into it, is that I don't think it really offers us anything really new or novel or or interesting that we haven't already had from the other series. And that's true of the Gollum scene as well. Uh, the difference being that Gollum is the only character in this film that I really wanted to spend any time with. So to me, that was the part where you felt like dramatically it actually had a bit of heft to it. Uh, the rest of it... Um, you know, Ian McKellen is still nice, but... Uh. <laughs> wow, because you, you know what I liked uh, about The Hobbit is I really dug Martin Freeman. I thought he was awesome as Bilbo. And I thought he was almost as good, if not better, than Elijah Wood. And I'm a huge fan of Elijah Wood. I could have actually done with more Elijah Wood in this movie. But I don't know. I, I, I think, first of all, he resembles Ian Holm, like a younger version of Ian Holm. But I like the fact that he starts off as sort of a character that you think could never be a hero. And in that specifically third act, he really does turn into the hero that, you know, no one would have ever expected him to be. And I also think that his character in a way resembles Token, like the actual writer, because he's never really in a rush to get to the adventure, which, again, could be a flaw of the movie. Like the fact that, you know, a lot of people complain that the first hour, it's a slog, like it's so slow. And, you know, I think The Onion or Cracked is running an article right now. Uh, claiming that they're releasing a, an extended cut and it's 53 minutes of, of of Bilbo trying to figure out what he wants to pack. And that's a fair criticism because it is really slow and it does take forever to get going. But I really, really liked Martin Freeman a lot. And what I find really interesting about this movie is there's only one female character in this movie, at least I think so. I, I can't remember anyone else but uh, Kate Blanchett starring in the film that was, a, that was actually a woman. Uh, I couldn't think of any either. And she's an elf, so she doesn't really count. Well, that's right. <laughs> okay, yeah, she's too, ethereal, she's too ethereal to to register in that way. Yeah, and I think actually, since you brought her up, I think it was also troubling that the only times in the movie that there was really any emotional undercurrent that I can detect, it was when we were spending time with characters from that first trilogy. So when we get a scene that involves Kate uh, Blanchett's character, uh, Galadriel and Gandalf, and they have... And, and they have that uh, actually a quite nice scene together. And you're like, oh, it's nice to see these characters back together again. And then you realize that it's you're actually just sort of getting a nostalgic kick from from movies from less than a decade ago. So so none of you guys like Freeman, because I, I really think no, he made an excellent I, Bilbo. I, I think he, I think actually if, if you if you're going to make these movies, I, th I think it's very good casting. I think Freeman's a great actor. And actually, um, a movie that not a lot of people have seen that he that I thought he was great in was Peter Greenaway's Night Watching. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which I thought he was absolutely stellar in, and this isn't that level of of involvement really. But I think I, I think he he does bring a nice mix of sort of he's got the the right sort of bumbling characteristic. Uh, I'm not really sure he's wide eyed enough, but uh, you know I I think he he does a fine job. But but I really think that he amplifies the character, and he's really like our avatar into like the adventure. And, you know, the, the funny thing about this movie is I would argue there's only really three characters that have a, a personality or that are really developed. There's uh, Bilbo. Uh, I guess you can also say Gandalf because we learn more about him because uh, he's a completely different character than what we see in Lord of the Rings. And, of course, now is his name Thoron? Thorin. Thorin, right, the dwarf warrior. 
Yeah, let, let's not let's not get, start getting into dwarf names. I'm going to start dropping like Blitzen and Donner in there while I'm at it. <laughs> uh, yeah, but and I, I'm hoping in you know in the second movie they're going to build on the other characters. I doubt it. We'll see. But I really do think that that the Hobbit is essentially like a big long tease for something great that we're going to get. I think next year it's being released. Feely and Keely at, at your, your service. service. You must be Mr. Boggins. No, you can't come in. You come to the wrong house. What? Has it been cancelled? No one told us. Can no, nothing's been cancelled. Oh, that's a relief. Careful with these. I just had them sharpened. It's nice, this place. Did you do it yourself? Well, uh, no, it's been in the family for years. That's my mother's glory box. Can you please not do that? Keely. Keely, come on. Give us a hand. Mr. Dwarven. <laughs> Let's shove this in the hole, otherwise we'll never get everyone in. Hey, everyone? How many more are there? Where do you want this? Oh, no. No, no, there's nobody home! Go away and bother somebody else! There's far too many dwarves in my dining room as it is. If this is some lothead's idea of a joke, <laughs> I can only say it is in very poor taste. Gandalf. No, I, I, I certainly hope. I certainly hope it's a, a tease and not sort of indicative. See, the way I felt about Freeman was that um, I thought he was fine, and I think it's it's good casting. And I certainly don't think he falls down on the job. I guess I didn't feel that um, Bilbo's. Uh, that Bilbo was sort of the center of the film uh, in a way that I thought he maybe should be more uh, because I think that his, the, as you guys were talking about the wide-eyed quality to it and developing into someone who wants to, uh, someone someone who's more heroic uh, in a sort of unlikely way, um, I just felt he gets totally subsumed by everything else in the film. And I think Jackson himself is in an effort to, distend this thing into something epic uh he sort of i i felt in this film loses the, the center and there's too much of everything else uh maybe that's because he uh, is just taken with all of these other dwarf characters and just the cacophony of the set pieces but i don't know bilbo felt like someone who was sort of bouncing around for the ride to me I would agree, except for, if not, the last 30 minutes of the film. And I think one key difference uh, with The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy is The Lord of the Rings trilogy, we follow so many characters who split up into so many groups that it's always bouncing back and forth from one action, you know, in whatever, whatever land to, like, the action in, like, whatever, whatever land. And in this movie, it's all focused on, like, 14 characters. Like, you get dwarves, and you get, like, um, what's his name again? Bilbo. Bilbo. Right, so you get Bilbo, and you get the dwarves, and it's really focused on that group of characters. And I, I agree, like, for a good chunk of the film, he's just along for the ride. But I, I guess that's part of the character arc. Like, in the last 30 minutes or so, he really does stand up, rise up, and he does become sort of like a hero. But in fact, I would argue, if the second movie continues the way this movie ends. He might actually be the greatest hero of them all. Uh, well, uh, the, there's a, there's a few problems with what's going on here. I think the uh, I think Thorin, who's played by Richard Armitage, uh, was a big problem for me just because he's sort of the the Aragorn of this film, if not the entire trilogy. I'm not really sure. You know, he's the sort of deposed leader, come back to take back his rightful place in his kingdom, et cetera, et cetera. But he's just not as interesting to watch as Viggo Mortensen was. And, and maybe that's because also he's surrounded by, uh, I, I didn't get an exact count, but I think 17,000 dwarves. Um, and, <laughs> and there are many rhyming names and they're all just so wacky. And it's just, uh, there, there's just a lack of, of, of focus or, or, a, or a lack of effective focus at least. And, and the fact that you, you, you mentioned something important, Rick, which is that in the Lord of the Rings movies, you're bouncing between the elves and the, the fellowship and sometimes spending some time with Saruman. Mm -hmm. And here you're, you're on one plane of action for nearly three hours. And again, it just, it does nothing really to justify, like, it, it feels like the, the movie should really be half as long as it is. 
It feel it feels like an eighty minute movie that's been padded out to over twice that length. I, I think we will all agree the movie should be shorter, but is your enjoyment lessened by the characters presented in this film or by the story? Like that's what I, I, I kind of want to know. I, I think it's both. I, I think it's the fact that a the characters aren't as distinctive and engaging as many of the ones, not all of them, but many of the ones we got in the first trilogy. And I think it's the fact that we're getting what's essentially an extremely simple story, except that for every possible bit of exposition, we're not getting a line of dialogue. We're getting a flashback. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're getting, so, you know, we're, we're getting voiceover. We're getting every possible bit of elaboration to explain really very simple things we're getting. And I have to say during that first hour, I was fading. Okay. I, I, okay. I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. I mean, the action does quite literally pick up. Uh, once they actually set out, but it it does take far too long to get there, and and it's not because it's complicated; it's just because he's decided to show and tell as much as possible. So, so I'm assuming you guys weren't a big fan of, say, the scenes in which the dwarves decide to play like cleanup in uh, his house and they mimic sort of like the Snow White characters when they're doing like the dishes and whatnot. <laughs> uh. That's right. You can you can rightfully assume that. <laughs> No, I mean, I found all of the I I really found almost all of the dwarves almost insufferable. And uh, so that was a big a big part of the problem. And I agree completely with what Simon was saying about Thorin, who uh, just doesn't resonate in the same way that that Vigo did. And he does fulfill a a similar function. But, you know, one of the other problems is that the story itself, it doesn't seem like there's there isn't a sense of, of great consequence to the, the actions the way there was in Lord of the Rings. I mean, it just seems like there's a lot less at stake. And I that that's in part because the story itself isn't as epic. And to attempt to blow it up into something like that, to treat everything with such great import and with such drawn out import, I just was really alienating to me. Um, you know, what you were saying, uh, Rick, about it being a kid's film, you know, it, it, it maybe could have functioned, at least for me, as a kid's film better if it didn't want to be something much more than that. Um, yeah. It wants to be equal to The Lord of the Rings in in, in every respect. And uh, that, it just doesn't seem capable in, in sort of any way of, of living up to that. And maybe, you know, doing one or, or maybe just two films even uh, at maybe not three hours a piece um would have made the humor more spry and would have would have shown that the tone of this entire work was was different uh, here i felt like he's stuck between being really slapsticky and comical and also wanting to have the same sort of gravity uh of the lord of the rings uh trilogy and uh, you know, as Simon said, the, a lot of it, a lot of the scenes that work uh, seem to be the ones that most remind you of that uh, earlier series. Well, and, and also, so. I, I think the movie is stuck between being a kid's film and being something more grown up. Both uh, also just in the the sheer difference between the stuff we get in the opening hour with the dwarves being silly and uh, Snow White-esque. And then when you get to to the end of the film and there's this never-ending sequence involving the Goblin King and the many, many goblins. And, you know, heads get cut off and, and <laughs> right. things get impaled, and it's really violent. And it's like, and, you know, it was clearly amped up for the for the sake of the film because, you know, from what I understand, the, these sequences really take up uh, very small amounts of, of the actual novel. And it, it's, it's again, yeah, you're, you're right, Nick, it's stuck between these two modes and it really, can't, it doesn't seem to be able to make up its mind about what it's comfortable with. Well, you know, Nick talks about the story, and I don't see much of a story in this film. What I mean, because the, the story is basically getting from point A to point B, and and, and we 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 just had our Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, podcast like about two weeks ago. We had Capone on from Main and Cool News, and I think all four of us—it was me, Kate, uh, Kate from the Televerse, Capone, and Simon—we all agreed we love the trilogy, but the second film is our least favorite because it felt that there was too much padding, and we all thought that maybe they could have either made each film shorter or just made two films. And I think the biggest problem, once again, here with the franchise is they decided to make three films. And even if The Hobbit book is two films, that book in itself could be made into one movie. Anyways, I think we should take a break. 
And maybe we, when we come back, we can talk about the effects. We can talk about 48 frames per second, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, that's a good idea. Sounds good. Hey, you're listening to Sound On Sight, part of the soundonsight.org family of podcasts. If you are enjoying the show, do visit the website. You'll find our Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook links there. Like or follow us on any one of those platforms to help us out and help spread the word. What's even more helpful is to give us a rating or review on iTunes. You can also check out all our latest news, reviews, and features on everything in the world of film and television. As always, thank you for listening. Was that a wolf? Are there, are there wolves out there? Wolves? No, that is not a wolf. Work, Scout! Which means an orc pack is not far behind. Orc pack? Who did you tell about your quest beyond your kin? No one. Who did you tell? No one, I swear. What in Dirty's name is going on? You are being hunted. And you've just heard another clip from The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, the first of three films in the new prequel trilogy directed and co-written by Mr. Peter Jackson. And yeah, as Rick intimated earlier, we haven't really gotten into, I guess, the more spectacular aspects of the film so much. I mean, most of the last two hours of this movie is an action sequence. In, in, in fact, I might be willing to uh, to get behind the idea that there's more action per hour in at least in that in the second and third hours of this film. I can't believe I even have to say third hour of this film um, <laughs> than any other uh, Lord of the Rings related film. And I guess for me, I guess the thing that keeps me from totally hating on the film is I do absolutely love the way Peter Jackson shoots action sequences. I think there's too much in this film. I, I think he. I think he gets away from himself. He he fails to... This is something we get back to all the time on the show, is people who don't know how to kill their babies. Uh, they don't know how to, to drop material from their beloved film, especially when it's uh, something like a an adaptation that's close to their heart. But, you know, if, if you've got to have two hours of near-constant action sequences, you may as well have uh, Peter Jackson doing them, because he does... Uh, the guy has an eye for action like almost no one. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the settings are gorgeous. The effects are, I think, are amazing. And the action set in Middle Earth, I like. I mean, that whole Indiana Jones like Goonies underground Temple of Doom sequence was just brilliant. You know, people complain about, oh, it looks a little dodgy. The effects. I mean, come on, guys. Like, I couldn't even dream of like one frame of that sequence. Like, I don't understand how Peter Jackson and his team actually went about designing that whole action sequence. Like, I, I get something like the Avengers because you already have. New York City has, uh, you know, it's like it, it's a city that actually exists. So you, you can start designing your action sequence around the buildings and around the street corners and whatnot. But here you have to imagine and create the whole entire universe uh, with your imagination. And I thought it was brilliant. Uh, the battle sequences were fantastic. But, you know, we talk about Peter Jackson not being able to cut away. 
or cut material from his movie that should be cut out. I mean, that could, I mean, the first hour and a half, I could cut out about 45 minutes of this movie. I wouldn't necessarily cut back on the action sequences because, once again, there isn't much of a story here. I mean, the whole movie is relying on those heavy action set pieces towards the end, which, again, is a flaw. Like, I don't think this is a great movie, but I do think it's a good movie. And I can't go so far as to calling it a disappointment and or a bad movie because there's just too much talent and creativity that went into creating this film. Well, I, I agree in a certain sense. I mean, I do agree, especially with what Rick's saying about just the, the level of creativity and ingenuity that goes into creating the world that we're seeing and certainly creating the sort of bounding set pieces. Uh, from a technical standpoint, I just think it's, yeah, it's an amazing achievement. For me, though, I, I've, I, maybe I've just grown sort of weary of that sort of action. Uh, Besides the fact that it, it goes on too long, although that is part of the problem, I just find that this sort of roller coastery sort of pacing of action sequences that sort of up and down, and now we're going to the right, and now we're you know flying down these caverns, and then we're up in the air, and and yet I didn't care a lick for what was happening during them. If you if you sort of have no investment in anyone involved in the action then it's just a technical showcase. And I won't dispute that it's an impressive one, but I don't know, you know, I've, I've been, uh, it, it just, it, it had, and, and not just that I have no emotional investment in it, because that's one thing, but there's also still here, especially in, in, I found in this sequence, there's such a lack of sort of weight of, of actual people being involved in this, of actual flesh, of actual, harm that could potentially occur it just feels like a bunch of digital proxies flying around and that's fine as far as it goes but i mean there was no drama to any of those things i mean none there you know beside the fact that we know bill is going to survive which is obvious and that that's sort of almost beside the point but but in a certain sense it's not because action sequences that really work trick you into thinking that your protagonist is in trouble Mm -hmm. um, we all know that, um, you know, Batman is going to not die in the middle of the Dark Knight Returns, right? I mean, we all know that Bane isn't actually breaking him. Uh, and this is maybe a bad example because I don't, I don't necessarily want to get into praising the Dark Knight Returns per se. But, but you, you, have to, you, have to, you have to convince the audience that um, something's going to happen that, in truth, they know isn't going to. Well, you have to raise the stakes, and I mean, we always talk about this. I mean, film spotting, you know, one of my favorite podcasts, they always talk about the stakes. And I agree, there really isn't stakes in The Hobbit because I never really feel anyone's in danger, including, uh, you know, uh, Bilbo. I, I mean, you're totally right. I'm not disputing you. Like, you're right. Like, you have to be emotionally invested into the characters. And that's not, not something I can help you with because I didn't write the screenplay. I do think <laughs> everything that's wrong in this movie is all in the script. And, and But the thing is, I still can't call it a bad film, because even though the script is bad, I think everything else about it is great, including the 48 frames per second, which I also still want to talk about. <laughs> well, oh, we're going to get there. Um, I, but, I, but, I, but, I, but basically what you guys are saying is you guys just don't like dwarves, okay? You guys are just racist. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I do feel this this film, yeah, it once again, demonstrated that I'm racist. Um, I'm sure you can find other examples in previous podcasts, but... Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think, Nick, you used the word roller coaster, which I think is especially apt because I think the real downside for me to these action sequences is I'm always impressed with the way you're, he's able to, you know, have these careening cameras and yet he, and yet we do have this fairly coherent sense of space and geography. Um, you know, I, I never felt confused as to where our characters were, which was nice, but there was an unfortunate sort of rail shooter to use, um, to use video game terminology, um, feel to especially the um, the underground sequence where you know our characters are more or less traveling along sort of a a platform game. Now I'm just I'm mixing my game metaphors. Uh, platform <laughs> game sort of uh, sort of um, trajectory where they're bounding from one precarious sur surface to another, and it, it did feel a little bit. Um, it it it. it, it it was trying really hard to 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 conjure a sense of spontaneity, but actually sort of had the opposite effect because it was so sort of fussily created. And again, I, I was kind of torn between being imp admittedly impressed 
and also sort of noticing the strings being pulled. Yeah, I totally agree. But there's there's other sequences that I really did enjoy, like the fist fight between the ch- the two gigantic monsters made out of like stone or rocks or uh, they were they were mountains that came to life. Uh, I thought that was one of the highlights of the film, and I know a lot of people don't like it. And one of my friends said, "Oh, it looked like a scene from the Transformers," but I actually really enjoyed that scene immensely, actually. But it, for me, it all boils down to screenplay. Like, I really just think it's a script that's all wrong in this movie. And, and when you say the script is all wrong, there were even some bits of dialogue that stuck out to me as being not... Um, how can I put this? There's a, there's a scene where uh, Gandalf is, and, and company are realize they've gone from a bad situation to a worse one, and two characters end up, end up div- dividing the line... Uh, you know, we're out of the frying pan and into the fire. I was like, okay, wait a second. Between the four of you, the four screenwriters, including Guillermo del Toro, that was the best you could come up, could, you could come up with for that sequence? <laughs> really? And th- there's little bits of dialogue like that that just seemed a little bit too broad, especially for this sort of fantastical universe. Well, I think that's what Rick's talking about with the kids element to it, which, you know, maybe it, it, it it's striving to appeal to a younger audience, which... Yeah, you know, I, I I would be more receptive to it maybe if it had pitched itself that way in in earnest. Uh, but you know, I have young kids, and admittedly, they're they're too young for something like this, regardless. But I, I just can't imagine. You know, <clears throat> there's too much sort of yeah. There's too much bloodshed. There's too much just exposition. Uh, and. I, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, the action, I think it's impressive, but, uh, in a certain sense, but, um, well, I, I just wish there was more, I wish there was more, um, heft to it. And by that, I mean more a sense of real, of, of real people or even if they're dwarves, but I mean, well, real, <laughs> real organic creatures. Uh, <laughs> well, no, you're right. It seems like, um, uh, the world building was good in, in a visual sense, but, I think we learned more from the opening prologue, which I believe was maybe five to ten minutes long, about the dwarves than we did for the next two hours and 45 minutes that followed. I mean, what did we learn? Like, we, we know they have, like, a beef against the elves. We've already learned that, like, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, apart from that, we don't really learn anything about any of these dwarves. Except, except, for the fact, except for the fact that they would make good housemates. And they really like food. And they really like food, which we, well, we already know they like food from the original <laughs> yes, trilogy. That's true. Um, I, I guess since we've, since we've raised the specter often enough, we all saw this film in 48 frames per second. Did we also all see it in 3D? Yes. 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 Okay. So we all saw it the same way. Uh, let, let's talk about 48 frames per second. This is the first at, at least major release ever to be in, uh, shown in 48 frames per second. Uh, so we're in uncharted territory and... I, I guess for for me, Rick and I, you, you and I discussed this already, so I'm going to spoil a, a little bit of what we talked about. Um, you mentioned that you're you were in a sense happy just to see. You know, we watch so many movies every year, and it's it's always nice to see someone doing something different. Period. And I think in that sense, um, it was it was an interesting experience. I think the um, the 48 frames does some things better than normal perhaps and a lot of things worse but i i guess what concerns me is the idea floated by jackson and james cameron that 48 frames is in some way the future of film in the in, in the sense that 3d has turned out to be in a sense uh that makes me a little bit uh skeptical indeed but 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 i, I did have an interesting time observing 48 frames well, I think what I said was I like it when a filmmaker tries something new. It doesn't necessarily mean I will like what he does, but I appreciate having something new. I mean, I watched like over 300 new releases in 2012. So if I see Peter Jackson, you know, toying around with 48 frames per second, then I'm curious to, to go see it in 48 frames per second. But if he's using 48 frames per second just to make the 3D look better so it doesn't look so blurry... Uh, I don't give a flying F about it because I hate 3D to begin with. I mean, every week I bitch about 3D. I wouldn't have such a big problem with 3D if they didn't overcharge for 3D. Because like I said in the previous podcast, uh, a filmmaker doesn't charge an extra $7 at the box office because he decided to use a special lens or he decided to make his movie in black and white or he decided to shoot in like, I don't know, like Egypt. So why am I getting charged an extra $7? Because you 
decided to shoot in 3D. Like, that's what really pisses me off about 3D because it all boils down to money. And so, therefore, I'm not for it because I don't care if you're Ang Lee or Martin Scorsese. I really do think that the studios are pressuring the directors to film in 3D because they want to make an, an extra buck. And I think if you take away the 3D from The Hobbit, nothing changes. Um, now, the 48 frames per second, maybe I don't like it or prefer it to normal film, normal 24 frames per second, but I do think that Peter Jackson did a fantastic job with 48 frames per second. I mean, the movie, for the most part, looks good. I didn't like the daytime sequences. Whenever we were in the daytime outdoors, specifically in the Shire, it just looked really weird, like really strange. But anytime we were indoors, underground, in the tunnels, in the cave, in the mountain, um, I thought it looked really good. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that that, that may be a, a really sort of key point. I, I, I felt, uh, the best I can say about it, I guess, is that uh, I got used to it uh, over the, the course of three hours. Um, I thought it, in general, looked um, pretty, pretty, or maybe I shouldn't say it looked pretty awful. I mean, it looks good in a certain sense. I, I found it to be pretty awful. Um, I have have for a long time hated the those those uh, features on flat screen TVs that that you know reduce film grain and and supposedly motion blur. And, right, motion uh, smoothing. Yeah, the motion smoothing, which I, I have a TV here that that or maybe maybe two of my TVs that do that, and uh, I can't stand the feature when you go into a store or you go into a you know anywhere, and I can immediately tell that it's on because it it gives you that strange sort of video ish camcorder quality to it, and I find it for for film content to be sort of awful, and here, um, I, not only do I do I not just not only do I not like the way it looks uh, just from a purely aesthetic standpoint, but it, it got to the point where it was interfering with my ability to even sort of enjoy the film and sort of appreciate the film. We were talking earlier about Martin Freeman's performance. And I think one of the problems was that I felt like from the get go, it, it just seemed like there was an actor on a set. And I remember thinking that about, uh, uh, Elijah Wood too. I immediately thought, my God, look at that ridiculous wig he's wearing. <laughs> I mean, I really did. And I never thought that in the first three. And the longer the film went on, especially in the first hour, um, the more I, I was sitting there thinking, you know, I really wish to see this um, not in 48 frames per second to see if the illusion the film was trying to create was stronger that way. Here, too often... Uh, I felt like I was watching, you know, I was, I was paying attention to Gandalf's robe. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the question we should be asking is the, is the medium good enough or fit for the material? And I don't think it is like this might've worked great for say a documentary on a soccer player. Like they had a documentary on a famous soccer player like a few years ago. And it was basically just shots of him playing soccer. That might've been amazing. I don't think it fits for the medium of like, fantasy adventure like something like lord of the rings but i do think the visuals are sharper and brighter uh, i i think the problem really is at, at least based on my recollection of the film is the movie put puts its worst foot forward in terms of what the 48 frames per second can do what it helps with in terms of the you know so much of the first hour is walking and sitting and talking and mostly in daylight and it, 48 frames does nothing for those scenes at best and at worst it it does have this sort of alienating fast forward effect that just watching it i can't imagine peter jackson and company watching you know for just a scene of, of bilbo walking through his hobbit hole and opening drawers which as the onion reported happens for 53 minutes um you know well, but but that's what i'm saying the, the, those earlier scenes it does not work because it becomes so obvious especially when you're in the daylight outdoors yeah. with the sun shining bright on the actor but it does work for the action sequences and i gotta give props to andrew lesney who's a cinematographer who i think is a fantastic dop i think he really um you know did a great job and he employs a dramatic effect to those action sequences that we see later on in the film so the thing is it's like i'm in agreement with everything you guys are saying but i also still want to like acknowledge the hard work and the creativity that went into this film, despite the yeah. fact that I don't like the script and, you know, 
I'm not a fan of 3D and I could have done better with a film format. I, I just can't imagine. And I again, it comes back to killing your babies. I, I, I can't imagine being so enamored with 48 frames and so enamored with the idea of exploiting a new technology that you don't notice how bizarre, especially the first half of that movie, the first third of the movie looks. Yeah, it it is. I agree. It's hard to imagine that they watch that footage and say, yeah, this is just this is great. (laughs) Leaps and bounds better than than, uh, uh, you know, shooting it normally. I I mean, I agree. I think that they're they're. I I I wouldn't want to just throw out the technology and say never again for any use ever. Um, But here I I just found it weird. And even as I said, when it, it gets when you get used to it more and maybe that is, as Rick said, partly because it's at night. And the sort of a foreground background spatial relations don't seem quite so strangely heightened by it um, that, that, you know, maybe it works better then. I still found like even with the with the uh, with like the whatever, whatever the, the bad guy's name is toward the end, the, 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 the goblin one who's king, yeah. the goblin king, right, the, who has all the orcs. Um, it was very I just found a lot of that footage, too, when they would zoom into close up with. Uh, in him it, it, it just seemed very odd i don't know maybe it was the having this total cg character and yet having this weird sort of camcorderish quality to the the shots i don't know I, as i said I'd, I'd like to see the film again just from an aesthetic standpoint because there's that shot that they're using in the commercials um where bilbo you know runs to to catch up with with the dwarfs once he's decided to actually go on the adventure and i remember thinking how strange it looked in 48 frames per second when i see it in the commercial it doesn't look that way right and i don't know if that doesn't i don't know if that didn't also heighten my reaction to the film which i already found sort of strangely paced and the characterizations were sort of driving me nuts and then also have this weird thing that sort of called attention to the artificiality of it um maybe you know i don't know i'm a big fan of film grain so (laughs) i think that that heightens sort of uh well and, and i and i agree i mean like a lot of people are harsh on me because i'm a big fan of quentin tarantino but one thing i really love about tarantino is the fact that he only shoots on film and his films are usually grainy for example and again i just don't think the 48 frames per second works for this specific material but i don't think they did they did a bad job with what they set out to do like i think they do succeed in shooting it well uh, but I think what we should all do is we should all watch the movie in 24 frames per second. Yeah, let, let's come back in a week. Yeah, and waste <laughs> another three hours of our life. But I think we were all curious to see the movie in 48 frames per second. You know, But I think we all went in knowing we weren't going to be happy or satisfied and not like it. But um, you know, put aside 48 frames per second, I'm a little confused about Radagast. Like, is he Santa Claus or something? Because he's riding around in, like, a sleigh pulled by, like, rabbits instead of reindeer, but they sort of, like, resemble reindeer. And he's, like, this hippie, and he smokes, like, blunts. Like, is this this character in the book? (laughs) Uh, From what I understand, he is in the book, but that's another one of those sort of kiddie elements, Uh, especially especially the rabbits, um, that doesn't really fit well with sort of the darker tone of the last third of the movie but it seems like peter jackson's taking elements from his favorite fairy tales or like disney stories like snow white or alice in wonderland he's putting it into the hobbit movie and it's just like whoa this seems like a whole new universe like this is not the this is not middle earth that i know of and that's and that's when you remember just how far away we are from dead alive yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh um anyway i i do think we should uh we should think about about wrapping it up uh, the last thing I wanted to mention about the 48 frames is the other aspect that I found really distracting is when we are getting these sort of careening camera motions through the, especially that uh, sort of climactic action sequence, it felt distractingly like uh, quite often like a video game cutscene, And I, I think that's connected to the fact that we're, that so many of the elements on screen are detect are detectably digital. And again, it's hard because watching a scene like the one with the go- like any scene involving the Goblin King, I'm impressed with how present that character feels, even though he's clearly a, a total CG invention. Same with Gollum, although strangely, I did find that the way that Gollum appeared in this movie, he wasn't quite as hideous as he was in uh, in the Lord of the Rings films. I don't know if that's because he's supposed to be younger, but uh, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one who picked up on that, but... Um, you know, it's, no, I think that's a that's a narrative thing. I think it, you know, he he becomes more monstrous in the yeah 
Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that was deliberate or not. I, I, I'm going to go with yes to give them some credit. But, you know, I, I get like, like like Nick, I think I was torn between appreciating uh, individual aspects and being distracted both by the design of the sequence and by this uh, 48 frames per second. Uh, yeah, well, let's call it a gimmick. I'm going to call it a gimmick. No, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I agree that um, I'd like to see it in, in 24 frames uh, because I think that, that visually it probably holds up be- much better, uh, in my opinion, uh, or for my taste in that way. Uh, and otherwise, I, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that the, that there's more sort of, that the, that the subsequent films sort of justify their existence, at least in their, in what form they're going to come in, uh, than this one does. I, I just, you know, again, I, I wish, uh, I wish that this sort of level of, creativity and talent was was i don't know you know put put to better use uh at least the lord of the rings trilogy is sort of epic enough in scope to to warrant the sort of treatment it got but when we start doing these things with the hobbit um i don't know i just I, you know part of me wishes peter jackson would do something else and i'm 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 concerned that this doesn't wind up you know I mean, you know, becoming uh, the Star Wars prequel. Do, as long as do something else doesn't resemble anything like the Lovely Bones, because and I'm and I'm not saying that the Hobbit is going to be, you know, maybe as uh, a divisive and and potentially objectionable as the Star Wars prequels are. And I don't obviously not going to open up that can of worms now, but it, I I make that analogy only in the sense that uh, we're going back to the well here, and we're going back to the well with material that doesn't seem to have the same sort of. Uh, epic quality to it that uh that its predecessors did and that it itself sort of warrants and all the digital trickery in the world just doesn't get you very far these days if there isn't something to tether it to well i would argue the effects in dead alive is superior to the effects in the hobbit film like, <laughs> seriously have you watched dead alive recently that movie's incredible uh yeah you, you can you can see every bit of viscera flying from the uh <laughs> For, <laughs> that I'm happy to pay extra 3D yeah. charges. I, or I want to see the Hobbit remade entirely, entirely with effects he made at home in his oven. Okay, but just to just to recap, so am I wrong to assume that they shot the Hobbit in 48 frames per second to make the 3D look better? And if they weren't shooting the film in 3D, they would have never shot in 48 frames per second. That's probably a, a safe assumption, and I do think, um, as much as I'm also not crazy about 3D, I do think that it did make for me at least the 3d a little bit more watchable i didn't have as hard a time focusing on the detail as i usually do but yeah. that didn't that didn't justify it for me well but this is why i have so much respect for filmmakers like pt anderson and tarantino and anyone else that's still shooting in film when everyone else is shooting on digital and they're all trying to defend the reasons for shooting on digital like and i don't buy it like they're shooting on digital because it's cheaper and it's easier but it's not artistically better than film i just do not believe anyone. I don't care if it's Scorsese who's made like, you know, 50 movies or Ang Lee or whatever. I don't buy it. It never looks as good. I guess David Fincher is probably the best at shooting digital, but it still never looks as good as film. Uh, never. I, 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 I don't, I can't get behind that. I mean, even if you think of a movie like Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, you know, people can do beautiful, th- beautiful and, and artistically viable things on digital. I, th- I think the the problem is people trying to justify new technology uh, you know, like like we do here, just by saying, "Oh, well, it makes that other new technology we forced on you look better." Well, that's what I mean. I mean, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia could have looked even better if it was shot in film, for all we know. And actually, I love the look of that film. And watching it, I couldn't help but say, "Hey, I bet this movie was shot in digital." Like, I right away assumed that it was shot in digital, as beautiful as it looked. But you know, I would also want to know: Do you guys think that video games are t- are probably too big of an influence on filmmakers these days? Because we had this generation of kids growing up, and they're playing movie, uh, they're playing video games like Assassin's Creed or like even the Walking Dead video game is amazing. And then they go to the cinema and they're watching movies and the special effects are no, nowhere near being as good as what you see in video games. So it just feels like filmmakers are, at least when it comes to action movies, they're sort of competing with the medium of video games. And it seems like every time we review a movie like a fantasy adventure, an action film, we always bring up the term video game quality. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And I, I tried... I try to sort of stay away from referencing video games too much because 
because for so long it's been treated as a way to knock movies and in a sense to knock video games and and uh as someone who's grown up playing games um for their entire life um and who still likes the medium uh, like I do uh I do think that there's there's been this sort of weird cross-pollination uh between the two in sort of a negative way and one of the problems with something like the hobbit and the hobbit isn't the only culprit is that the action sequences take on they're they're they sort of take on a cutscene quality to it in that they're attempting to sort of so dazzle you technically uh without having sort of any uh any sort of emotional or any sort of dramatic import uh i mean cutscenes i have my own issues with as a form but uh yeah, one of the problems with cutscenes has always been that you know who cared because you never you so rarely care in video games about anything other than the action itself and the interactive action. And the movies seem to have taken the or some movies seem to have taken the wrong lesson here, which is that you know we have to trump that and that that's the way to engage people with as much digital flash as possible, and we sort of won't worry about whether or not it it means something or whether there's any sort of sense of consequence to it. Um, you know, I'll, I'm going to quickly cite a film that, that got onto my honorable mention list in which I, I wrote about sort of extensively at the village voice, which is, uh, the new universal soldier film. I just think that that's an example of, of doing action in a way that, that feels like something. And it's sort of almost the opposite of what goes on in the Hobbit, where it feels like, you know, the characters may as well be ghosts and you could just punch right through them because they can't really suffer. They don't really feel pain. There's really nothing. So, 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 do you like Universal Soldier Four? I do. Yeah, I love. Yeah, it. see, Simon, I told you it's a good movie. I was telling Simon he should watch it. I've had my screener sitting here waiting for me to watch it, and I just haven't had time yet. But now I'm going to have to do it. No, that's okay. Yeah, no, I, I loved it. In fact, I, I, I did a big profile piece on on John Hyams, uh, uh, for the Voice, which is what I was referencing, uh, because I was so sort of taken with the film, and that's a film where that where where action really has a sort of very visceral and physical quality to it you can really feel it and it really feels like people even though these characters are <laughs> somewhat superhuman um it feels like it's something's actually happening whereas in the hobbit i felt like or and in a lot of these things and it's because of the the to some extent the, the video game influence it just feels like a bunch of uh like a bunch of digital proxies being tossed around and if there's if there's no sense of anyone getting hurt then what is there to action? I mean, I know that you could say the same thing about a Schwarzenegger film from the eighties, I guess too, um, or a Stallone film. I mean that, you know, they were impervious to pain in the end, but at least there, there was, there wasn't the sort of a filter of digital technology where we literally aren't dealing with anything that exists in the real world. And, uh, I love, don't get me wrong. I love computer generated effects and I like fantasy films and, I'm glad that we have these technologies that allow us to make these movies, which previously were impossible to make. But mm -hmm. there is a there's sort of a right way and a wrong way to do it. And when it becomes so much sort of theme park flash, it it uh, I don't know. I just I just uh, well, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, I think everyone was using the terminology uh, MTV-like or music video-like. And now, like 15 years later, everyone's using the terminology of video game-like. And I think music videos and video games are an art form, and there's a lot of hard work that goes into that medium. But it's a different medium. And I think um, they're getting some of it right, but they're getting a lot of it wrong. Like, yes, visually, like you want to... Uh, excel and you want to like make your effects in a movie look as good as whatever whatever video game that just came out but i think it has a lot to do again with character with story but also with the way it's edited because video games are really chopped up they're really quick super fast cuts uh, you know mostly geared towards kids with uh low attention span but with a movie you kind of want to go the opposite direction so it's it's like it's it's tricky like trying to find the balance but I don't even know where I'm going with this. I, <laughs> I, I just wanted to cut in and say I haven't seen Universal Soldier, but as we're talking about video game influence, I don't see any. I, I don't think it has to necessarily be a bad thing. I think of a movie like The Raid Redemption, which, to be honest, it was a video game. It was structured exactly like a, a classic video game, but it still managed to have 
action sequences that felt visceral and and that felt like something was at stake and you could and you could feel the the, the blows land so i don't i don't think the, the influence has to be a bad thing not only do I agree with you, Simon, but I'd say that Universal Soldier, the the latest one, is also has um, serious video game influences, both in terms of structure and in terms of um, uh, camera work and uh, choreography. And I spoke with with Hyams about it, and he didn't disagree that that he had been influenced by those things. But as I said, there's sort of a right way and a wrong way to do it. I think, as we all agree. Um, there are certain qualities to video games, whether they're first-person shooters, third-person shooters, you know, platformers, that um, that that really have a uh, that that really have an effective means of of conveying uh, thrills and suspense. And certain films, like The Raid, uh, can 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 borrow from that while also maintaining something cinematic. Uh, you know, other times though, it just you know, it, it, like The Hobbit, I it, I just think it it uh it, it sort of loses the thread of of why we care about the the material in the first place. Well, there there's two sequences in Universal Soldier Four that are remind me of the raid action sequences. But in terms of video games, um, Universal Soldier Four reminds me of video games like Double Dragon and Contra, uh, especially the original Contra and Super Contra. The Hobbit reminds me of this really bad Indiana Jones video game I played once, which I, I think it was for PC. And there's actually a sequence where you're underground on like the railroad and you're in a little cart and like it was just terrible. And, you know, as much as I, I'm trying to defend The Hobbit and I do like it to some extent, uh, everything you guys are saying is totally correct. Um, so let's hope for a better sequel. And I really just want Peter Jackson to move away and go direct something else um, that's not the Lovely Bones. Uh, I would really love him. To, I would really. I'm, I'm a huge fan of horror films. I would love to see him do a horror film. I want to. I want to see him do a Drag Me to Hell in between every one of these movies. That's what I want. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice, and to do it in a way that was was, I don't know, a little more compact, and a little more humble, just sort of stripped down. I mean, it, I just make something that's not three hours and thinks it's you know great literature or great cinema i, I don't know you know they i think he like many people has gotten taken with the idea of making great grand cinema which is great but you can sort of lose you can sort of lose uh, your way that yeah, way too call, call it chris nolan syndrome i guess who would have? Who would have? Yeah. Who would have ever? Yeah. Who would have ever guessed we would praise Universal Soldier four, but not praise The Hobbit? Strange. Well, there you go. All right, so uh, we should really wrap it up because we've already kept Nick longer than we said we would. So, uh, Nick, uh, we we already did. Uh, we already plugged your stuff a bit, but uh, just tell us, uh, tell our listeners where they can find you online. Uh, well, uh, they can find me online uh, at. Uh, slantmagazine.com they can find me uh, in the pages of the village voice or on in the online page of the village voice time out new york uh i write uh, a weekly column for uh the blog that goes along with uh, green sin the uh dvd rental company uh that's a uh, daily.greensin.com and uh yeah also at my blog uh, i and ho- which will hopefully be updated again sometime soon which is nickshager.com it's called lessons of darkness excellent so Named after Herzog film, I assume. It is, yes. Ah, such a good movie. All right, uh, so we're gonna we're gonna have to bring you back some time because this was loads of fun. If you'll have us and... for a better film, for a better film though. Yes, that would be nice. <laughs> By all means, it's been, it's been great. All fun. right, and uh, <laughs> so we're gonna take it out with a uh, with a bit of music. And thank you for listening. Pound your
glass And the boy in the crow's nest will cry It's the day of the big surprise See how the harbor lights do burn Revolution 